Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Last Wednesday, it was ashes. In our case, ashes from Grandmother Oak. We wore them. This week it's water. It washes us. Thank you, family. And in between those Wednesdays was Sunday. And it was the first Sunday of Lent. And the text was the story of Jesus' baptism and the wilderness temptations and his initial proclamation as found in Mark's prologue. And I invite friends up now to help us tell it and show it. Hear the gospel of God. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my child, the beloved. In you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels waited on him. Thank you, Drew Hudson, who's making a project out of memorizing the Gospel of Mark, as uh, many people have been doing in the storytelling movement, biblical storytelling movement. Thank you for that. And, of course, Tevin and Jay, um, always showing it to us. So the story of Mark's gospel here uh, will illuminate our theme this morning of digging into our histories. It begins with a dramatic immersion ritual. The story of Jesus begins with a dramatic Immersion ritual in the wide, wild waters of a sacred river. There's no infancy narrative. There's no childhood tales. Brother just shows up abruptly, <laughs> signaling his desire to apprentice with John the Baptist, who's way out at the edge of the world, building a movement to renew it at the river Jordan. Jordan. 
Why John? Perhaps the attraction... Uh, let me make sure this works. Josh, if not, somebody's going to have to. It's not working. Why John? <clears throat> Perhaps Jesus' attraction was to John's clear self-identification with the radical tradition of the wilderness prophets. Indeed, John's costume, Tevin and Jay are big into costumes, and rightly so, because costumes have meaning. Costumes help tell the story. Uh, and John's costume, uh, camel skins, as Mark tells us, uh, is symbolic, invoking the memory of the great Elijah. You find that story in 2 Kings. We're going to be referring a lot to the left side of the Bible, y'all, so find your way. Elijah, who challenged rulers and lived in caves. Perhaps you will recall that Elijah's story lacked a certain closure since he just disappeared up into the heavens in a chariot of fire at the Jordan. That was the Hebrew Bible reading from two weeks ago. So Elijah's legacy was a subversive one because he was AWOL, could return at any time. Now, we don't know much else about John the Baptist outside of our New Testament witnesses, but the Jewish historian Josephus, who was a contemporary of Mark's, writes that Herod, that would be Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great or Herod the Evil, uh, or Herod, let's make Israel great again. Uh, <clears throat> Herod executed John for plainly political reasons. That's what Josephus, the historian, tells us. It turns out the Baptist preaching was stirring up a popular insurrection. Something like a new poor people's campaign was brewing. Uh, just like Elijah of old, he was... Uh, uh, what, what did the colonists say? The natives were getting restless. Uh, now, of all the mentors that Jesus of Nazareth could have chosen to initiate him into the movement, it is deeply significant that he makes his way to this... There we go. I really want, to, I really want people to see this pictograph. If ever there was a baptism pictograph. It's deeply significant that Jesus makes his way to this politically notorious dissident and feral prophet at the storied River Jordan. Now, there's something different about Jesus' baptism. In Mark's narrative, everybody comes out to the Jordan from the four directions. Uh, and they're baptized, we're told, in the Jordan. The Greek preposition is en. It's a ritual of repentance. Jesus, however, is baptized into the river. ton Jordan. This is a distinction with real theological and social significance. It is a total immersion. Now, I'm not trying to get into baptism debates that have riven Christianity. That's boring. I want us to pay attention to the deep waters here. 
Now, this immersion invokes the spirit's descent in the body of a wild bird, a dove, an oak view dove. That bird comes down onto Jesus, same preposition, maybe into Jesus. Think of Ted Littenhatton's ornithology. When we were at Wild Goose a few years ago, Ted talked about, he studies birds and reflects theologically on them, and he says the dove has a certain structure to its skeleton that allows it to hover for hours in the air in a stationary position. So, now, I know that traditional theology uh, usually understands this scenario, dove coming down, um, in terms of divine empowerment from above of Jesus. But couldn't we just as well argue that this story is narrating that Jesus is being enspirited from below, from the river, from a deep submersion into, into, into his beloved homeland, the Jordan River watershed through which Creator still speaks, being initiated into the sacred wild spaces of a land groaning under Roman occupation. That's what prepared Jesus for his campaign to liberate and heal his people and place. Don't try to sustain yourself in the movement without immersion in something greater. Hence the allusion here to Third Isaiah's longing for Yahweh to free the people from oppression by empire. That's the meaning of Mark telling us uh, that the heavens were torn open. That's an allusion to the sacred stories of his people. They're all over our gospel stories. We just don't have eyes to see them because of our lack of literacy. And after this epiphany, Mark's Jesus is driven by that spirit deeper into, same preposition, or proposition, (laughs) into the wilderness to prepare for this mission. Jesus follows a mysterious yet compelling calling to radical solitude, following the footsteps of his ancestors into a wilderness sojourn identified with the number 40. Oh, you know that old story. Following the example of John the Baptist, Jesus lives off the land. He wrestles with spirits. He's supported by animals and angels. Now, in its longer version uh, that we find in Matthew and Luke, the narrative of the wilderness temptations uh, implies a kind of a vision quest in which Jesus journeys through the Spirit to revisit three fateful historical crossroads of his people, rejecting the economics of mammon, the politics of empire, and the ideology of entitlement, those three temptations, in order to discover the roots of Israel's crisis. This archetypal episode is so important that we devoted an entire institute to it four years ago, which some of you participated in. How many of you were with us in 2014? Uh, we spent the whole week just on the three temptations in Matthew. But here in Mark, the story is spare. 
but no less profound. These three immersions into river, into bird, and into wilderness invite us to pay attention to the landscapes of our gospel narrative. They aren't just backdrops. They're an intrinsic part of the meaning of the story. And when we lose our ability to see the landscape, we've lost the plot, as Australians say. Or as Harvard Talmudic scholar John Levinson put it, geography is simply a visible form of theology. I want you to sit with that for a minute. Geography is simply a visible form of theology. Now, many of you here are familiar with this baptism text, which you've heard and which has been shown and sung. We've worked with this many, many times as an orienting framework for both the gospel narrative as a whole and also as a way of introducing you to our bioregion. Some of you will remember that we use this very narrative um, in which we do an exercise in which we recontextualize it in the Ventura River watershed using um, figures from the indigenous history of this place and try to retell and re-narrate uh, the story in our watershed, our history, our indigenous culture. This morning, however, I want to probe an aspect we haven't explored quite as much, namely how this text suggests another immersion. I want to suggest that Jesus' baptism was also a deep dive into the sacred stories of his people. Jim Baird Jacobs is a Mohican colleague in Minneapolis, and he's taught us a lot about learning the stories that the land holds. When we did our institute there in uh, October 2015, uh, or maybe 16, um, <clears throat> he, uh, he talked with us about this. Um, he said, you know, Westerners tend to steward their narr narratives through texts. While indigenous cultures understand sacred stories as being embedded in the land itself. From this perspective then, beneath the surface soil or built environments of every piece, every place, lies strata of history and culture, much of which was traumatic and much of which was redemptive. Jim Bear has pioneered a project called Healing Minnesota Stories. It's a campaign in, which is an effort to problematize heroic European accounts of pioneer settlement in the top of the Mississippi River watershed from the perspective of the indigenous people who were victims of that settlement by telling native stories. This is a matter that Elaine will take up in a few minutes. If Jim Bear is right, then we might speculate that John's prophetic movement was incubated at the Jordan River because that river held the deeply formative and important stories for the history and identity of Jesus' people and hence for Jesus as a redeemer of his people. Now, a little bit about the River Jordan, a little uh, geohydrology. The Jordan was and is the spine of the land of Israel. It runs some 156 miles north to south from Mount Hermon in southern Lebanon into the Sea of Galilee, then on down the Rift Valley and eventually into the Dead Sea. The name Jordan, Yerdin, means the one who descends. 
as it plummets from the mountain foothills all the way down to the Dead Sea 400 meters below sea level. Uh, It is a river of dramatic rapids and gorges as well as meandering bends and quiet pools of trickles in the dry seasons and floods in the wet. I want to do this. Sorry, I, I missed a prompt there. No, no, no. Uh, go forward. And, yeah, this is, uh, that's the descending Jordan River there. Archaeological evidence suggests human habitation along the Jordan for more than 100,000 years. And yet, in 100,000 years, no major cities were established along its banks. Well. <clears throat> it only average 90 feet in width and about three three to ten feet in depth, right? So um, maybe that's why it certainly wasn't navigable. Harder to colonize, I guess. It was, however, often uncrossable, and there were some 60 fords along the length of the Jordan in antiquity. So while the River Jordan may have not been so very deep and wide as the old spiritual goes, It was most certainly the watery soul of that dry land because it was the backbone of the narrative of the people. Jordan's river is deep and wide. Hallelujah. Meet my mother on the other side. Hallelujah. Jordan's river is chilly and cold. Hallelujah. Chills the body, but not the soul. Hallelujah. This old river held the stories. It is first mentioned in our biblical canon in Genesis 13 at the point that Abram and his kin Lot part ways so as not to overly concentrate human settlement on the Jordan Plain. Y'all say, go this way, we'll go this way, it'll be good. The Jordan River is also where Jacob wrestled with angels. Genesis 32, a story so archetypal that it it becomes an etiological tale. That just means a story that explains how I got my name an etiological tale on the origins of the name Israel. Any of this ringing a bell? We're, we're way on the left side of the Bible now. New, ter- new terrain for a lot of the Christians. It's also where Moses uh, stops on the Exodus trail and assesses his movement, pausing on the Exodus journey at the Jordan in order to take a survey of everybody who came out of Egypt, trying to consolidate Uh, the movement to see what we got as we prepare to cross back into the land of Canaan. The Heptateuch, as it's called, that would be the, the, the Torah, the five books plus Joshua and Judges, is full of skirmishes between Israelite tribes and the various forces allied with Egyptian hegemony in the land of Canaan, fighting for control of the fords so that people get could get across the river. 
And later in the biblical story, the great prophet Elijah, we've already talked about him after passing the mantle to Elisha, is taken into the clouds at the Jordan, 2 Kings 1. The story of Elijah's assumption was so powerful in the consciousness of the people that it haunted their imagination, such that the prophet Malachi promised that one day God would send the AWOL Elijah back to the people as a harbinger before the great and terrible day of reckoning to attempt to turn the people around. Uh, This vision obviously animated Mark's gospel since John the Baptist shows up at the Jordan dressed like Elijah and his whole project is to try to turn the people around. That's what the verb repentance means. And it's not just turn yourself around, although it is that. It's an appeal not just for a personal change of heart or mind, but it's directed to the people and the nation and the history as a whole, as if to say, while headed in the wrong direction, it's a disaster in the making, we had better turn this ship around. It's a passionate warning that we've got to change directions. And finally, the Jordan was where that Apprenticed prophet Elisha heals an enemy general, pitting the power of Jordan's sacred waters over that of the mighty rivers of Syria. If you know this story in 2 Kings 5, there's a tussle between the king and the prophet, uh, or the general, excuse me. This is an enemy general, right? This is uh, uh, somebody who's uh, working for Al-Qaeda, and he comes, he, he hears through the grapevine that Elisha has healing hands, and the, the general turns out has leprosy, and, uh, and Eli- Elisha says the message, well, you got, to, uh, you got to dip into the Jordan rivers, and you will be healed. And the general says, Jordan, man, that thing's not very deep and wide. We got good rivers in, up here in Syria. I'll just dip on up in there. And Elisha says, oh, no, 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 enemy general, you got to come to our waters. Uh, <clears throat> That's a story so archetypal that the young Jesus of Nazareth invokes it in his very first sermon in the Nazarene synagogue. A sermon with a twist that almost gets him killed, you might remember. But of all the stories held by the Jordan River, of all the keystone narratives to the history and identity of Jesus' people, the amazing tale that Rose and company just narrated and showed and sang to us, stands out above all. And so let's do a little study of that to build out what Rose has introduced us to, because it's a story probably many of us have not encountered before, as we don't venture over to that side. The context is the end of the Exodus, as Rose said, Now the Israelite tribal insurgency must turn its attention toward a struggle to liberate their ancient homeland. The problem, however, is how to find a way back in. You see, we need a little history lesson to contextualize this ancient story. Canaan, a.k.a. Palestine, was actually, we forget this bit, at the time it was a province of Egypt. It was under the boot of the Egyptians. 
It was ruled over by militarized tribes who were all in a tributary relationship to Pharaoh. So ironically, these Israelite refugees from from Imperial Egypt who did stage that big slave walkout and left Egypt, uh, actually they never left the sphere of Egyptian sovereignty. They just got out into the wilderness where that sovereignty was less had less of a hold, and they went the big long way around, and now they're trying to come back into this edge of the Egyptian empire called Canaan. They're instructed by God to go back to their homeland and to struggle for freedom, which is perhaps why the Exodus story, which famously begins, as Rose told us, with a miraculous story of the crossing of the Red Sea on dry land, concludes with this second crossing of the River Jordan on dry land. Let me offer, uh, pull out your smartphones and dial up Waze app. Is that a national app or is that just California? International. International, okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Pull out out your smart-ass phone because we're going to do a little traffic report here. Uh, This is a map of Palestine in the late Bronze Age. Think of this as a SIG alert report. That's our local thing. SIG alert for dissidents. Palestine had three important land trade routes showing, shown here. There's an, is an east-west axis map, so don't get confused. Um, the coastal route uh, along the eastern Mediterranean was known as the Way of the Sea, right? From the Latin, the Via Maris. Uh, the road was the main trade route connecting Egypt with Anatolia and Mesopotamia. There were two branches, one near the coast, one inland. Um, This was the main trade route uh, and where things were going up and down. The second was the ridge route connecting mountaintops in the interior. It ran along the central mountains. To the east were the deep wadi valleys, the Jordan, uh, Jordan River, and the Arabah, the desert beyond, and to the east were the foothills leading to the Mediterranean. Uh, The King's Highway was the third uh, street mentioned in uh, the Book of Numbers. It was the valley route uh, traversing the eastern tablelands and linking the capitals of Edom, Moab, and Ammon uh, as far as Damascus to the Gulf of Aqaba. I know this is where your eyes glaze over, um, but it's actually really interesting because it reminds us... Thank you, David. Stay with me, brother. It's interesting because it reminds us that the Bible isn't a fairy tale and didn't take place in some far, far away land. It was in a real world uh, with real politics of power and oppression and militarism. Uh, Here's here's the issue. Each of these well-traveled routes, which facilitated commerce... um, were also the grid for how foreign forces controlled the land. That's how Egyptian power was projected and maintained in Canaan. And that meant that all these routes would have been heavily militarized and controlled by the forces of Egypt and its satraps. Which meant, if you wanted to go back into the land of Canaan, you can't take 101 and Highway 5 because it's controlled by the man. So you got to go in the back door because you are escaped slaves and there's an APB out for your asses. Is this getting a little bit more real? 
Uh, this is a <clears throat> venerable American historical painting. We talked about it a little bit last year. Um, <clears throat> it is, uh, it's called Slave Hunt in the Great Dismal Swamp. Uh, and it's by abolitionist artist Tommen Moran, dated 1862, right? Just after the uh, Gettysburg Address. Uh, it depicted escaping, just before, excuse me, it depicted escaping slaves whose strategy of going through water, why did they go through water? To lose the tracks so the dogs, shown here in this painting, couldn't pick up their scent. Yeah, that's right. That is the strategy that inspired the great conductor of the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman, in her famous advice to wade in the water. Wade in the water, children. Wade in the water. God's going to trouble the water. Must be who those children all are dressed in red. God's going to trouble the water. See, it's telling the story. Must be the people that are Moses led. God's gonna trouble the water. Next verse. Who's those children all addressed in white? God's gonna trouble the water. Must be the ones of the Israelites. God's gonna trouble. Next slide, Chris. Next verse. Who those children all dressed in blue? God's controlled water. Must be the ones that have made it through. God's controlled water. Let's wait now. Wait in the water. Make America great again? Build up some literacy in Negro spirituals. Who are those children all dressed in red? Who are those children all dressed in white? Who are those children all dressed in blue? Red, white, and blue. What was Harriet telling us? That like Dr. King, a century later, she was struggling for the soul of America. And in order to do that, we have to wade through the water. Well, that's a story that comes to us only thanks to African slaves in American fields struggling for freedom. They're the ones who preserve those stories. Because white folks weren't interested in singing those stories. And those stories go way back to our text. So this explains why Joshua's slave revolt tried to sneak into Canaan through the back door. Off the beaten track. They were fugitives from a slave system. So they chose a spot on the Jordan that was close to their first target. And their first target for the freedom struggle was 
big badass Jericho, sitting on the landscape like a battleship, a fortress city-state, one of the oldest cities in the world. Now Jericho was an outpost of Egyptian-aligned power protecting the eastern flank of Canaan. And we know from another slave spiritual all about how Joshua fit that battle. Later in Joshua's account, we hear about taking down that fortress with some jazz horns and a circle dance. How's it go? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Sure they did. Well, friends, go back to the last slide, Chris. They really did come down. (laughs) It just took a while. So they're crossing the river, but there's just a little problem facing the Israelites, trying to sneak into Egyptian airspace. And that is that, like all the major highways, all the fords to cross the river, this is before bridges, y'all, all the fords were also well defended by the Canaanite militia. All right? Oh, hi, we're uh, escaped slaves. Uh, can we get a ticket on the ferry to come back and start a liberation struggle? All right? Ice be on your ass like that. So Joshua and them would need to swim across. Unfortunately, the narrative tells us it was springtime and the river was flooding. And you go in those waters and you're done. It was uncrossable. So Joshua falls back on the old playbook, Tommy. The old coach's playbook. And when in doubt, call on God to call on the waters and bring nature as an ally in the liberation struggle. Right, nature is an ally of people struggling for freedom. That's in the old playbook of the Exodus, right? Nature piles up against Pharaoh so the people can get free. Once again, nature cooperating with the liberation struggle piles up. You just go to that old playbook and just like that old story, up pile the waters in a single heap, far off, as far off as the city behind Zarathon, all the way to the Arabah. I know we don't know our map, but they did, and that was significant. They're talking about real geography as theology. So as the story tells it, the waters parted to the north and the south, and the people crossed opposite Jericho. And like the Red Sea story, when they were across, the waters closed back up. Don't cry. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you moan. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you moan. When those waters close, Pharaoh's army got drowned. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. I know there's lots of cool stuff out, out there on the worldwide interweb. And lots of cool little things, you know, contemporary spirituality. I don't believe you can beat the guts and heart of these old stories. Let us not shed them. 
Nice story, but there's more to it, as you heard in worship today. Counterintuitively, I mean, think about it. You're trying to make a quick, covert movement so you don't get caught. Try to slip across the river. Don't nobody take too much time. Go, 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 go! Right? Yahweh says, I think this is a good time to settle down and have ceremony. (laughs) And the ritual is about 12 stones from the bottom of the riverbed. This is something that we in our rocky bioregion, in which these mountains constantly send stones rolling down the river, the descending rivers. This means a lot to us. That's why we got these stones from our river. Joshua sets up the stone, as Rose told you, as a cairn on the Canaanite side of the river. It is a kind of revolutionary Stonehenge in the place called the Circle of Stones, or in some translations, the stones that kept rolling. It's ancient political theater. It's tantamount to planting a flag right here on the outskirts of Jericho. The Israelite guerrillas declare their campaign for liberation. The 12 stones symbolizing their alternative form of social organization. That other flag has 13 bars. Symbolizing a particular body politic. So here, 12 stones representing a tribal confederacy, a cooperative of mutual aid, not a hierarchical empire of domination. These are people with no king but Yahweh. 12, a confederacy of people. It's a declaration of insurgency. It's the first step to engaging Jericho with brass and song. Lots of brass. Took lots of brass to take on Jericho. Above all, these stones, as Rose told us, are stones of memory. They hold the story, reminding generations to come. That would include us. That creator, and indeed creation, is on the side of the oppressed. Despite all the evidence to the contrary. Despite all the evidence to the contrary. Lots of evidence to the contrary. They've got history, particularly as told by their historians. It's all about kings and generals and who won. Lots of evidence to the contrary. We've got, um, yeah, we've got stones, so don't lose them. Now, I know this sounds a little pagan to some of you all, so I can't help but don't shoot me. I didn't write this stuff. The truth is, (laughs) the notion of stones holding sacred stories is not a marginal one in Scripture. Turns out, the memory of these stones reaches back to the inauguration of the covenant at Sinai, the foundation story of the people, which was sealed with a similar cairn erected at the foot of the mountain, down from which Moses brought the laws of the covenant, which were etched in Later, Joshua will call these sacred stones to witness to that covenant, and if necessary, witness against the people, if the people forget that covenant. People forget. Stones remember. 
This must be why we don't spend a lot of time on the left side of the Bible. It's just a little too... These stones were erected again by Elijah in his struggle against the priests and prophets of Baal, the imperial cult of the Canaanites. You bow down to Baal, you're doing business with Pharaoh. That's why. And when he called down fire upon their imperial shrine, what did Elijah do? He replaced it with a circle stone of 12, symbolizing the original wilderness vision in another dramatic public liturgy. And that's why Job is reminded by the voice of the Creator that if he keeps covenant with the stones, if he keeps covenant with the stones, then all of creation will be our allies in the struggle. That's what it says. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Oh